The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, some of the imagery that we have seen in this most marvelous book, we must confess, is a bit overwhelming to us. It seems at times too good to be true. And yet we know your word is faithful and true. We know that you are a God who cannot lie. And so as we taste and see and hopefully look forward to this blessed eternal life, that you would be gracious with us this morning to use this future hope to change the way we live right now. We know that you are our good and giving Heavenly Father. We know that you promise to provide for us and protect us. We know that you give us purpose and you will one day commune with us. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take these eternal truths, these essentials to blessed living, enable us to see that we have them now if we are in Christ and we will have them perfectly in the New Jerusalem. We want to be able, Father, to leave today with a greater understanding and a greater hope of the great God that you are and how you care for your people intimately and specifically. And in that care, Father, walk securely and boldly in this life. I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage and this sinful man to transform your people. Only you can do that by your Spirit. Our flesh is unwilling and unable. So I ask that you would, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the sermon is The Blessed Life. I could have capitalized the T-H-E. It's a picture here we have of our end in Christ. And it is truly, again, over the top and glorious. And it actually addresses many of the essentials that we need, um, we believe we need, and we actually need as human beings, as those created in the image of God. In 1848, Karl Marx published the now infamous book, The Communist Manifesto. Some of you may have been required to read that in school. Um, It was his blueprint for overcoming the struggles of mankind. Um, really for overcoming the fall. Now, he was an atheist, so he obviously did not believe in the biblical narrative of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, but he did not deny that the world was broken desperately and needed to be fixed. And so he came up with this plan for a utopia, a, a heaven on earth. And in his plan, he actually addressed the four essential blessings to living a blessed life, the things that mankind needs, provision, Protection, purpose, and communion. And, and in his development, he, he looked at mankind and he said, we need provision, we need, we need food, we need water, we need shelter. And, and according to his plan, everybody would receive that equally. He believed we needed protection. He said the state can do that at first, but then it will be by an ungoverned populace. He believed that our purpose was our work and that we were each uniquely designed to, to produce and do something. And he believed that our communion would be with what he called the proletariat, which was the working class, the brotherhood of those who labored. 
Over the past century and a half, over 63 countries have embraced in some form Marx's vision of communism slash socialism and with devastating consequences. Countries like the former Soviet Union, China, North Vietnam, Korea, Cuba, they embrace this and in the name of human progress, in the name of meeting man's needs, they have literally put tens of millions of human beings to death. Political oppression, war, famine, forced labor, mass execution, purges, these are the hallmarks of Karl Marx's utopian vision for mankind. An abject failure. Now historically, these are, the, these are only the most recent scars that man has given himself in his attempt to overcome the fall of Genesis chapter 3. Ever since Genesis 3, when sin entered God's good creation, mankind has battled for provision, protection, purpose, and communion with his creator. He's battled to have a blessed life and to live in a blessed way. We know we need to be provided for. We are creatures, not the creator. We know we need protection. We know we need eternal purpose, and we know, deep down, we all know, we need communion with God. The picture that John gets today is truly extraordinary. He's still seeing a vision of the new Jerusalem, but what he is seeing is God's people enjoying perfect provision, perfect protection, perfect purpose, and perfect communion forever and ever. In other words, he's seeing the perfection of a blessed life in the eternal realm. It is the, a real utopia where human beings flourish as God intended in the beginning before the fall. And it's achieved not by political or economic or philosophical manifestos, but by God through the cross. This morning, I would like for us to look at each of these life essentials briefly and with the knowledge that we have all four perfectly waiting for us in heaven, live very differently right now until we come into the truly blessed life. I'm looking for God to reveal to us this picture of what Christ has done that we might live faithfully for Christ right now. I'd like to do that by considering two things. First, the three essentials of blessed living, provision, protection, and purpose, the three essentials for blessed living, and then the one essential for the blessed life, and that is communion with God. The theme of the sermon is this, sacrifice the perfect life now for the perfect life to come. Sacrifice the perfect life now for the perfect life that is to come. Are you with me? You say you started off with Karl Marx, what are you doing? Three essentials of blessed living, provision, protection, and purpose. As human beings, created in the image of God, we are creatures and we need to be provided for. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 22. John said, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the same angel that showed John the new Jerusalem descending 
out of heaven, coming down to earth in all the glory and majesty of God. The same angel that showed John this picture of the saints worshiping God and bringing God all glory that he deserved. He now gives him a glimpse of just how blessed, just how good eternal life is going to be. And he uses two very, very well-known biblical metaphors, living water and the tree of life. And that they both, in essence, they symbolize God's perfect and eternal provision for his people in total. And so first he says, the river of water of life. He sees this and he calls it bright as crystal, which means it's pure and it's unpolluted, and that it has the refreshing power to come to us and satisfy us. And it's pure because we're told it comes directly from the throne of God and from the Lamb, which means the source of the water is the Father and it is the Son. He is the spring. He is the fountain. It's extraordinary. And then he says it runs right through the middle of the street of the city. It runs right down Main Street in the New Jerusalem. This living water, this river of life. And he tells us that because that means it's accessible to all who are there. All can come and drink and all can be satisfied perfectly, eternally in Christ. Now the imagery of the river, you might be thinking, oh wait a minute, that's, that's Genesis chapter 2. We're, we're, in, we're in Revelation 22. And yet I'm thinking about the very beginning of the story. At the end of the story, the beginning of the story, and they're coming together. In, in, in Genesis chapter 2, we have the description of this, this living water also in the Garden of Eden. It was described like this, Genesis 2.10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, to give life to the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers, Pishon, Gihon, the Tigris, and of course the Euphrates. Now John, he certainly is thinking about the restoration that we have now to this pre-fallen condition, this pre-fallen sustenance of life, um, and that we now have access to it through Christ. We're no longer denied this river. But, but I think John is really drawing more directly from Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel, following the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, he also got this vision of this new Jerusalem. And it's very similar to what John is seeing here in Revelation 22. So this is centuries before Christ. Listen, Ezekiel 47, the prophet writes, Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. And wherever the river goes, listen, every living creature that swarms will live. Everything will live where the river goes. In other words, the, the life-giving river that Ezekiel saw coming out of the temple, John sees coming directly from God the Father and God the Son. And this river gives life. Everything and everyone that drinks from this river lives perfectly. Physical, emotional, intellectual satisfaction. At the deepest levels, this river quenches every good thirst man has ever had. Now imagine that for just a moment. Every good thirst you've ever had being perfectly satisfied by God through this living water. He also, though, talks about a tree. I'm sure you heard that. Look at the latter part of verse 2. He said, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Now, the tree here, it's singular in the Greek, but it very likely is, is talking about the composite of multiple trees on either side. But each tree produces 12 different kinds of fruit. So they're supernatural trees. It's one tree producing 12 different types of fruit, 
And, and it does it perfectly because it produces one new fruit each month. No tree that you have like that in your backyard or your garden. How incredible that would be. And it's a picture of perfect, listen, perfect and perpetual nourishment for God's people for all time. Perfect and perpetual nourishment for God's people for all time. In fact, this tree is so powerful, its leaves, we're told, it has medicinal qualities. It can heal the nations. Now, we, we know that the nations don't need to be healed because Christ has always already done that in the full redemption. But it has that power to sustain mankind forever and ever in their worship of the living God. Now, just like the river, you're probably thinking, now, wait a minute, that goes back to Genesis chapter 2 also. I know about the tree of life. I know that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in their sin, so they didn't eat from the tree of life. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God said, Therefore, they were sent out of the garden of Eden. He drove them out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they wouldn't eat from it and live eternally in their sin. Now the tree of life for, for centuries has been associated with, it's with heaven or eternal life. And to eat from it was equated to eternal life. And there's this, this attempt by man to get back to that tree, to find the tree, to eat from the tree. If you remember in our Lord's, I hope you remember, well, it was a little time ago now, uh, back when Jesus was speaking to the church at Ephesus. If you remember his promise to Ephesus, this is Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus said, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will grant eternal life to those who persevere in the faith, especially in the midst of persecution. And it's the same hope that Ezekiel saw in conjunction with the river, listen to Ezekiel. On the banks, that's the river of life, on both sides of the river there, they will grow all kinds of trees for food. They will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And so what John is seeing in Revelation 22 is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to the church in Ephesus and Ezekiel's prophecy centuries earlier. No longer does an angel guard access to the tree of life. Not in the new Jerusalem. That angel is no longer preventing people from coming back into the garden, back to the water of life, back to the tree of life. Instead, man is welcomed in, into the presence of God to have all of his needs, every single thing that you truly need as someone made in the image of God, you have access to in the new Jerusalem. The water and the tree are fully yours. That's perfect sustenance. Listen closely. Perfect satisfaction. Perfect health. Let me say that again. Perfect health. Yeah. Listen to those who say amen because they're, they're hurting. Perfect knowledge, perfect joy, perfect purpose. No hunger and no thirst of any kind ever again. In other words, mankind is living with God as God intended mankind to live with God in the garden before the fall. Perfect provision. Now, John was given this vision to give to the church. I have no doubt so that God's people then and now, 
will not spend our entire lives, our time, our energy, our monies, chasing after perfect provisions now. That God's church will instead, we will sacrifice and serve rather than stockpile and consume. That God's people, in light of the provision that we know, lay before us in Christ. That we will be satisfied with the basic provisions that God provides for his people and patiently wait for the eternal provisions to come. Now, my beloved, this is a, this is a hard message in the West. This is a hard message, message in Silicon Valley. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, well, let me just read it to you, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. Let me read that one more time. If we have food and clothing with these, Christian, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. What a plague, indeed, the desire to be rich. What a plague to have New Jerusalem provisions now has had upon the Western church. I doubt most Christians in the West can say they are content with food and clothing alone. Hard words for us today. And so we spend an inordinate amount of time and money and energy trying to have perfect provisions, New Jerusalem provisions, right now, even though we know that God's promised we will have them in eternity, I want you to think for just a moment. Think about resources that you have. Think about time that you have. Think about possessions that you have that could go to the kingdom and the gospel and Christ. Think about some of those. I'm not talking necessities of life. You need clothes and you need food and you need shelter. God said he'd provide those. I'm talking about all those things you think you need that you really don't. We would call those luxuries, would we not? The luxuries that you think you need, the expensive or the excessive clothes, the toys and the gadgets and the services. You gotta have that latest iPhone, you gotta have that latest streaming service, and you gotta have the smartwatch. I was at a convalescent home a few days ago, and this woman was sitting there outside. She must have been in her late 80s, early 90s, and she's talking on her smartwatch. And I thought, that's amazing. No generation gap for her. Americans spend billions of dollars each year on expensive vacations, expensive dining out, the latest fashions, and what seems to be an endless desire to consume entertainment. All in an attempt to do what? To have New Jerusalem provisions right now. We want it now. We don't want to wait. And grievously, the church in the West does not look much different. We don't stand out from the world in our satisfaction with food and clothing. We don't stand out to the world and the giving of our resources and our time to the kingdom and to the gospel and to the lost. We don't, at least here in the West. In many ways, we're like, we're like those children in the delayed gratification experiments. You ever seen those poor kids? They get five M&Ms put before them. They say, listen, if you wait 30 minutes and don't eat those five M&Ms, you're gonna get 100. And the large majority of the kids, they scoop up those five and they throw them down and then they cry when they don't get their 130 minutes. We're very much, in many ways, in the West, like those children. We don't want 
delayed gratification. We want it now because we think we need it. You remember when Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 19, he said, what are we going to receive, Lord, for following you and giving up all that we have? Listen to Jesus' response. This applies to you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new Jerusalem, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There's good reason for delayed gratification. There's good reason to wait. In the new Jerusalem, you will only know perfect provision. You will lack nothing. On this side of heaven, while we wait for Christ, God promises to meet all of our needs. Not our wants, but all of our needs. So instead of trying, my encouragement to you, instead of trying to build up your own kingdom here on earth and enjoy new Jerusalem provisions now, let's seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and rest in the truth that God will provide for us eternally and temporally. Amen? We need provision. God promises to provide. But we also need protection. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And then John says, look at verse 5, and night will be no more. Now we saw last week that night was, was used metaphorically to describe darkness or evil and how the light of God and the lamp of the Lamb emanating from the throne in the New Jerusalem will cast out all sin, all evil, and all darkness. It cannot be there. No more pain, no more suffering, no more disease, no death in the New Jerusalem. Verse 3 said, no longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing cursed in the new creation. You see, with the fall of man, we found ourselves cursed by God, did we not? Cast out of the Garden of Eden, cast out of the presence of God, denied the water of life, denied the tree of life, subject to all the pain and suffering we brought upon ourselves by our own sins. Adam, we know, was forced to work the land. He had to sweat to eat. Poor Eve, we know, worst curse, I think, had to go through the pain of childbearing. All mankind became subject as fallen creatures in a fallen world, subject to the dangers of a fallen world. But what John sees here in the New Jerusalem, he says he sees the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. In other words, God's absolute perfect reign will ensure that no cursed thing no external enemy of God, not Satan, not the beast, not the false prophet, not any evil man who hates God, no external foe and no internal enemy will be in the new Jerusalem. And that means, my beloved, no fear, no temptation, no sin, no anxiety in the new Jerusalem. The curse is lifted and that means God's people are are truly free. We're really free from any danger of any kind, external or internal. And that means in the New Jerusalem, God's people, we can, we can serve, we can work, we can play, we can sleep without a single thought of fear of any kind. Not fear for ourselves, not fear for our loved ones. It will not exist because the curse has been lifted and there is perfect protection in the New Jerusalem. Perfect protection. That means, my beloved, no more wars. 
No physical attacks, no shooting at the mall, no rape, no murder, no child abuse, no sex trafficking, none. Oh, man. No cancer, no disease of any kind, no heartaches, no heart attacks, and no anxiety because there will be nothing to be afraid of. No anxiety. Let me say that again to my brothers and sisters who are often anxious. There will be no anxiety because there will be nothing to fear. You will be perfectly protected by our Heavenly Father. I imagine for some of you who, who are my beloved hand ringers, that's a hard thing for you to picture. Maybe even you're saying, I, that's impossible. I'm, I'm anxious all the time. You're not alone. Uh, in a, a very recent poll, Americans, one out of every three Americans say they suffer daily from anxiety or depression. One in three. And if you're between the ages of 18 and 24, that's one in two. That poor group of people, 18 to 24, pray for them. 50% suffer daily from anxiety or depression. It appears, at least in the West, that one of our greatest enemies that we face is not external, but it's internal. It's our own minds as we battle ourselves. We know where there's no protection from others or from ourselves, there can be no blessed living. There can be no happy living if you're filled with fear and anxiety. Without protection, I would argue all the provisions in the world become meaningless. It doesn't matter how much you have if you are in a constant state of fear because you're afraid they're going to be lost. You remember when God lifted that hedge of protection from from Job? He allowed Satan to test his most faithful servant on earth. You remember what Job lost? He, He lost everything. He lost his children, his servants, his livestock, his fields. He even lost his own health at the end. The only thing that was spared was his life. Without the protection from God, Job found himself in a most pitiful state, crying out for mercy from God. Now we know the end of Job's story. Job remained faithful, and God blessed him in the end. We're told in Job 42.10 that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before In the New Jerusalem, God's hedge of protection is never lifted. It's permanent. God's people are secure in his presence forever. And if God's promises of perfect protection is your future, then you must know now, it makes sense now, that he's protecting you now. It doesn't make any sense. What good would it do for God to allow you to be consumed by your enemies, external or internal? What good would it do for God to have you forsake your faith in Christ and forego your eternal protection and Him allowing that to happen because He didn't protect you in this life? God protects His people, God protects His church. Now that doesn't mean, my beloved, that you're not going to lose things. We're still on this side of the Jordan. You're going to lose things. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose family members. You're going to lose your your physical well-being. You may lose your finances. But what God's promise here and what makes it so good is that God says you will not lose the most important thing, and that is your faith in Jesus Christ. God promises his people that you will never forsake him. He will guarantee that by compelling you and causing you to remain faithful. We can say with the psalmist in Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, in times of need. Right now, 
God is with you. As Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now that's powerful knowledge, my beloved. If you know that your future in the new Jerusalem is perfect safety, no fear because there's no threat, no external, no internal threat, and if you know that God is with you right now protecting you from forsaking Christ, then you, guess what? You can be bold, can you not? You can be bold in your faith. You can be bold in your proclamation. You can be bold in your obedience to God according to his words no matter what the consequences because you know that God is with you. You know that he's with you and you know your end is perfect protection and therefore we can take risks right now, my beloved. We don't have to be such an anxious, fearful group of people. We can take risks for the gospel and for Christ Jesus said in John 6, 39, this is the will of him, the Father who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You cannot be lost if you are in Christ. Therefore, we can be bold now in this very dangerous place. So blessed living requires provisions from God. Blessed living requires protection from God. But I've got to give you a third here, and the text bears this out. Blessed living requires purpose, requires telos, meaning in life. Look at verse 3 again. John writes, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So nothing accursed in the new Jerusalem. God is reigning upon the throne. We are worshiping him. He's receiving all the glory. It's good. And we realize that we're able to accomplish our God-given purpose perfectly. And that is to what? To serve God. The Lord. Now, just as much as we probably didn't like to hear about provisions in the West, we're probably not going to like to hear about serving in the West either. The Western culture is not a serving culture. The Greek literally says this in, the, in, uh, in, in uh, verse 3, latter part of verse 3, and his servants will serve him. The ESV says worship, but it's better. His servants will serve him. You see, my beloved, you are made by God to serve God. That's why he, he created you. Not because God needs you to serve him or ever needed you to serve him. We believe the Bible teaches clearly that, that God is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. This is called the doctrine of aseity. He needs nothing from anyone ever. Perfectly self-sufficient. You were made by God to serve God because, listen, the greatest privilege and the greatest honor of any created thing is to serve the Lord. That's the highest calling. It's the highest calling now, and it will be the highest calling and the highest position in the eternal kingdom. So, well, how do you know that? Do you remember when, when James and John, remember when the mother came to Jesus and said, when you come into your glory, Lord, I want my sons, James and John, the sons of thunder, I want one to be on your left and the other to be on your right. And Jesus in love shook his head and thought, hmm. First he said, well, you don't know what you're asking because he's thinking of the cross, right? But then he says this, Jesus, he gives a shocking answer then and now. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your, say it with me, servant. Must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Well, this was hard for the disciples to hear. And I would say probably even more difficult for the Western ear to hear. The highest position in the kingdom of God 
as it's manifest on earth and in eternity is servant. It is to serve. To serve God and to serve one another. It is necessary for blessed living. Serving as God has made us to serve. How many Western children say, when I grow up, I want to be a servant. When I grow up, mom and dad, I want to be a slave to people. Serving them, giving, sacrificing. I dare say that even a Christian parent might rebuke that. Foolishly so. The very core of your DNA, of who you are as an image bearer of God, is to serve. You were made by God to be a servant of God. And if purpose, and I believe this to be true, if purpose is necessary for image bearers to have a flourishing life, to have a blessed life, if having purpose is necessary, and your God-given purpose is to serve the Lord, it even tells us how at the end of verse 5, reigning forever and ever, we know that's with Christ. If that's your purpose, to serve the Lord as you reign with Christ in the eternal realm, then living contrary to that purpose here on earth right now, means unhappy living. If you strive right now, as many Americans do, and as many American Christians do, if you strive now to live contrary to your God-given purpose, which is to serve the Lord, then your life will not be blessed. You will bring unhappiness and hardship. And that means, my beloved, you can have all your needs met, all the provisions you want. You can have all the safety and security you want. But if you live a purposeless life, not because you don't have a purpose, but because you either do not know it or you're rebelling against it, if you don't have that transcendent reason to get out of bed in the morning, then blessed living will evade you. You cannot live a blessed life and not live in the purpose that God has given. One of the sicknesses of a godless culture is not knowing our God-given purpose. Our DNAs, my beloved, are so hardwired to live purpose-filled lives that if we don't know what our purpose is from God, we make it up on on our own. We come up with our own purpose, why we're here. We seek out purpose in work. We do it in relationships. We do it in hobbies. So if we think that our purpose is to heal the sick, we become doctors. If we think that our, our purpose is to make lots of money and just enjoy life, we go into industry. If we think that our purpose is to be a husband or wife, we get married. To be a mother or father, we have children. If we think our purpose is, is hedonism, which is probably the purpose of the Western world, right? Just to enjoy yourself and have as much fun and, and pleasure as you can, then we, our purpose becomes self-indulgence. The problem with all these pursuits, whether they're good or bad, is they're what? They're self-defined. Now, creatures cannot define their own purpose, You can, as a created being, say, this is why I'm here. You were made by God, and the purpose was given to you by God. A hammer does not say to itself, my purpose is to hit nails. Hammer's purpose is given by the hammer maker. That big, beautiful bowl of pasta that sits before you at dinner. The pasta does not say to itself, my purpose is to delight your tongue and fill your stomach. It doesn't make that up. The purpose of pasta is given by the pasta maker. Our purpose 
as created beings must come from God. It must come from God. And if it's not God-given, then we know, we know deep down it's not real and it never satisfies. In the new Jerusalem, you will exercise your purpose perfectly. You will serve God as you reign with Christ upon the throne forever and ever. You will not be confused about your purpose in life. You will not go through your life saying, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I fulfilling the will of God? You won't do that. Your purpose will be clear and you will serve faithfully. And if our created and eternal purpose is to serve God, then it makes sense that we would serve God now. It's not like your purpose changes after you die. The purpose remains the same. And if your eternal purpose is to serve God and reign with Christ, then we ought to serve God right now in this realm. I do believe that one of the reasons that so many, listen, so many Western Christians lack joy and a sense of purpose in their life is because they're not serving the Lord in their lives. They're not. I believe one of the reasons there's so much anxiety and depression is because many Western Christians live contrary to the purpose that God gave them. Even those with all the provisions and all the security, they have everything they think they need, but they're missing their primary purpose and therefore they are miserable. I want you to think for just a moment about your daily routine, your Monday through Friday on a regular basis, not the abnormal weeks, but a normal week. How much of your day-to-day life would you say is devoted to the glory of God and service of others? How much? An hour, two hours, 12 hours? Are you doing what God called and equipped you to do? Your gifts, your talents, your resources, and are you doing it for his glory? That's a purpose-driven question. Or are you doing what your parents wanted you to do? Or what your friends said you should do? Or what the culture has pressured you to do? On top of your daily vocation, how do you spend the remainder of your time? Once you've once you've done your primary job, whatever that job is, how do you spend the rest of your time? Your, we call it, I love it, we call it what? Your free time. Is there such thing as free time? Is it just there and you just grab it and do whatever you want? Or is all time given by God? I think the latter. How do you spend your time outside of your vocation? Is it primarily serving others for the glory of God or is it primarily serving yourself for the glory of of self? In the new Jerusalem, you will be doing what God equipped you to do, that is serving him and others for his glory and you will be, listen, you'll be filled with joy. You'll be filled to the top with joy in your serving God and one another because that's what you were made to do. Here's a secret. Created beings are most happy when they're doing what they were created to do. Created beings are most happy, most blessed in their life when they're doing what they are created to do. You were created to serve the Lord. You were created to serve others. If that is not a primary distinction of your life, and I'm not talking about things you do, I'm talking about being a servant. I'm off script now, so listen. I'm talking about you being a servant. Most of us feel compelled to do things at times. You know, we'll, we'll clear the, the dinner table, we'll take out the garbage, or we'll text that brother. I'm talking about, is your heart one of service? That you're looking and you're thinking, you're praying for opportunities to serve because you know that's what God has called you to do and that's what brings you the most joy. And those are not in conflict. 
It's okay to do what God has called you to do in obedience and receive joy in doing it. Are you a servant? Maybe I should rephrase that. Are you living as the servant that God has called you to be? Three essentials to blessed living. Provision, protection, and purpose. Absent one of those, and life isn't so blessed. If you're missing the basic necessities of life, the things that you need, if you're totally dissatisfied, if you find yourself in a state of fear and anxiety on a daily basis, or you wake up every day and you have no idea why you should get out of bed, well, you're not going to enjoy blessed living. You will struggle. Christ has given us each of those now. Promised provision, promised protection, and the purpose of what? Serving and glorifying God in all that we do. So we have those now. And they're necessary for blessed living, but there's, there's one more, and, and I'm going to end on this, and it's the best way to end. You can have provision, protection, and purpose, but if you don't have this one thing, you will not have a blessed life. You may know some blessed living, but you will not have a blessed life. My second and last point, the one essential to a blessed life is communion with God. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, by the way, is, uh, is probably one of the, one of the most um, intellectually and theologically leveling verses in all the Bible. Because <laughs> John says in verse 4 that they, the people of God, will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And you say, I, I'm, I'm missing the impact. I want the impact to come upon you. The greatest curse of the fall being cast out of the garden it wasn't being denied access to living water. It wasn't being denied access to the tree of life. It wasn't the fact that Adam had to till the soil and that Eve had to give birth to children. It wasn't the lack of protection. It wasn't the confusion over purpose. The greatest curse of the fall was the broken communion between God and man. It was the intimacy between God and man being shattered as a result of our sin. Man being cast out of the garden out of the presence and out of the intimacy of God and having no access back in. According to John's vision in the New Jerusalem, God the Father and God the Son, as we saw last week, is perfectly accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's perfectly accessible for us to worship Him. He's perfectly accessible for us to receive glory from God and give it back to Him. And John tells us here, that we will see him, we will see God face to face. To see someone's face then, it was a metaphor to, to know them as they really are. To know them and to be known by them, to see someone's face. It's known in, in theology as the, the beatific vision. Don't think of Mary. I want you to think of God. To see God's face is to know God as he is, to be fully aware of his presence and his majesty and his power and his glory without the veil of sin. See, right now, we only see God dimly, right? What did Paul say? 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see him in a mirror dimly, but then how? Face to face. You're gonna see God. You're gonna know God. Paul says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even I, as I have been fully known the greatest agony of the curse and the greatest suffering 
that mankind experiences is being separated from God. But the hope that Jesus promised us in the Sermon on the Mount is that the pure of heart will what? We will see God. Those who are made right in the blood of Christ will see God and know God, not as judge, but as Savior. Not as a warrior, but as a friend. Not as a God, but the God who is now on our side. We will see and know God, and God will see and know us. Look at verse 4 again. They, the redeemed in Christ, will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now you say, oh, I remember that. The, those who followed the beast, they had, they had the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hands. I remember that. That was horrible. And then you said that the name of God would be on the 144,000. We saw that in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. And that's what John is seeing here, that name on the forehead. And again, it's not literal. It's not Yahweh tattooed across the forehead. That would be weird. It's not that. It's symbolic. And it's revealing the, the radical intimacy that God will have with his people. So much so that his name will be written upon our hearts and minds. We belong to him. We are his, captured by love. We are his to enjoy and to be enjoyed personally and intimately for all eternity. Seeing God's face and having his name written upon our forehead, it communicates the radical relational intimacy all those in Christ will have with the Father, Son, and Spirit forever. Verse 4 is a radical relational verse in the New Testament. And if you have communion with God, you will have the blessed life. If you know God like this, you see God's face and you have his name written upon you because you belong to him, then you will know the blessed life, that sweet communion. And you'll have that, my beloved, not because God found you pleasing, and not because God found you worthy. You will have that blessed communion with God because he found his son pleasing and he found his son worthy. In Exodus chapter, well, do you remember when, when Moses was coming down from, he was up too long on Mount Sinai and the people got all worried and they thought that he wasn't coming back so they convinced Aaron to make the golden calf. Remember that horrible scene in the Old Testament? and the people worship this golden calf. Well, in Exodus 33, God is very displeased, and, and he tells Moses, that's it. I'm not going with you to the promised land. Listen. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. They're at Mount Sinai. He says, go up to the promised land, you and the people. Go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it to them. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. So the result of their idolatry, their horrible idolatry of the golden calf was God saying, I'm no longer going to be in your presence. But you notice what he said. He said, I'm gonna provide for blessed living. I'm gonna give you all the provisions you need. It's going to be the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. I'm going to protect you and provide safety. I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to drive out all of your enemies. And I'm going to give you the distinct purpose of fulfilling my covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, Israel was giving provision, protection, and purpose. And yet they knew 
that if they had those things, but they did not have God, they would not have the blessed life. They knew that. Even then, they said in Exodus 33, 4, when the people heard this disastrous word that God was not going with them, it says they mourned. They mourned because they knew they could have all the blessings of life, but they did not have the blessing of the life giver of God himself, then it was not going to be a happy life. It was not going to be a promised land without their Savior. And so Moses, he interceded on their behalf. Listen to what he did. He comes before God. This is Exodus 33, 15. He said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Let us stay at Mount Sinai. He says, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me, speaking of himself and your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And then in verse 17 of Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. He said, I'll go up and I will dwell with you in the promised land as I said. And then he said, why? He says, because, listen, I am pleased with you and I know your name. God agreed to go and bless the idolatrous Israelites because he was pleased with Moses and he said, I know you, Moses, by name. I know you intimately and you know me. In other words, Moses served as that high priest, that federal head. He served as Israel's representative. And because Moses was faithful and God loved Moses, God said, I will go with this idolatrous people into the promised land. My beloved, God's promise to dwell with his people in the eternal promised land, in the new Jerusalem, is not because we are worthy of his presence. Quite the opposite. We are all idolaters, just like Israel, deserving of eternal separation from God. God promises to lovingly dwell with his people, the church, in the new creation because he was pleased with the head of his church. He was pleased with the real high priest, God's ultimate representative, his son, our savior, Jesus Christ, who he what? He knows by name and is pleased with. You remember when Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan by John, the voice from heaven said what? This is my beloved son with whom I am what? I am well pleased. Through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ secures for all who repent and believe, he secures access back into the presence of his father. The opportunity to see God's face, to be known by God, Jesus Christ, did he not petition God the Father from the cross, saying what? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They know not the degree of their idolatry. They know not the degree of their sin. Just like Moses in the desert, Jesus from the cross petitions God to allow us in, to grant us access to his face and not be destroyed. When God had promised to go with Moses, Moses had the petition that we all know so well. Verse 18 in Exodus 33 Moses said to God, please show me your glory. He's saying, please show me your face. I want to know you. I mean, I want to really see you, Lord. God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and what? And live. Even Moses, a friend of God, faithful Moses, whom God was pleased with, could not see God's face and live because of his own sin. But because Jesus Christ, listen with all your might, because he ascended the cross with your sins and looked God face to face, He went into the presence of God with all of our sins and because he did that and was put to death on our behalf, you 
by grace through faith can be washed pure by the blood of Christ. And if you're washed pure, if you have a pure heart, then guess what? You can see God too. This is the great promise of Christ looking into the face of God from the cross with our sins as our substitute that we too can have this eternal life that we can through the blood of Christ be granted access into the new Jerusalem. That you can have all the provisions, all the protection, the great purpose of serving God, but most of all that you can have God and see him face to face. My beloved, this is the blessed life. This is it. It's seeing, knowing, and being known by God. If you have all the provisions and all the protection and all the purpose in this life, but you do not have God, you do not know the blessed life. You do not know eternal life because that's what Jesus said eternal life is. High priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus said this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Seeing God face to face, being known by God, your name written, his name written upon your forehead, that is eternal life. That is the blessed life. I want you to rest in knowing that God will provide for all your needs. He is a good father. He will do that now and he'll do it for all eternity. I want you to be at peace in knowing that God will protect you in this life and perfectly in the next I want you to know that your purpose has not changed. You were created to be a servant of God. Serve God now. But above all that, I want you to spend every moment of every day striving to see, know, and enjoy God's face. Seeking to experience his glory and his goodness as you bring him glory in all that you do, at home, at work, in the church, in the world. Seek to live as one who really does have the name of God written upon you. Seek to live that the world might see that you belong to Christ with your holy living, your sacrificial service. Let it testify that you are a true Christian, a follower of the Savior, a servant of the King, perfectly provided for, perfectly protected, and purposed, filled forever. And never. This is the answer, my beloved, to man's fallen condition. It's not communism. It's not socialism. It's not any solution offered by man. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that grants us access back to the living God now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray you would show us your goodness. Show us that you have and that you will provide and protect us. Show us clearly our purpose to serve and glorify you. And show us, Lord, that in Christ we one day, we will get to experience what Moses was denied. We will get to experience knowing you as you truly are. Seeing your face and being known and enjoyed by you. Lord, I'm going to end my prayer with that. Do that for us. That is sufficient to know you. Bless Christ Community Church in that way. For if you do, Father, and if we relish 
in this communion we have with you through Christ, then we will live differently. We will be a transformed people living for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.